sorry with the expression is they call like tech tech porn or something whereas <laughs> you just make it look so alluring <laughs> it just makes you excited Hi everyone, welcome to the MetaCast Roundtable round by Navic. And today I'm joined by David Amor, CEO of Playmint, Jos van Drunen, investor at New Brooklyn, book author and professor, and Matt Dayan, lead product manager at EA and also contributor at Navic. Hello everyone. Hey. hey, hey. Hi, hi. How are you all doing midsummer? It's good, it's a little quieter. It seems to be year on year, I think uh, more people take a, a, a good amount of time off over the summer. Maybe it hasn't happened in America. What do you think, guys? Do you do, you do that there? Is July, August quiet months? Yeah. Yeah, I've always found it so interesting. Like nothing gets done. Nothing gets decided. No emails <laughs> move forward. You're sort of sitting there staring at your screen. So you're better off kind of cooling out somewhere. There you go. I'm in pre-holiday bliss. I leave tomorrow. And then I come oh. back in September. Oh, <laughs> nice. So yeah, and we were talking. We were talking about the fact uh, earlier in the week how it's it looks like it was going to be a quiet week, and then a couple of topics showed up that's yeah. made it quite a busy, uh, quite a spicy one to get into later. Sorry, I interrupt, Joe. Joe's. No, I was just wondering we, where she was going on vacation, but it's all good. <laughs> oh, uh, Argentina! If you have any listeners oh, in Argentina, well. looking forward to visiting your beautiful country. <laughs> And hopefully not get lost and return. So just before we go into the topics, I absolutely love this new news article in the week. It was titled, The Verge Bioware Activates Its Thirst Trap Card with a Romance Bundle for a Beloved Dragon Age Character. What is it? It's a thirst trap, apparently, in terms of merchandise. It's great. Because I don't know um, if you played Dragon Age, but there's quite a lot of romance. And apparently, you know, the game has existed for a few years now, but there's still a lot of people that have these feelings for the characters. And so they created merchandise um, for each of the characters. And one of them, you can buy a locket that has a love letter. It's great. Perfect. <laughs> you can be buying that. <laughs> uh, yeah, for you. It's your Christmas oh, present. Yeah. Lovely response. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the topics we have today, um, we're going to be talking about Blizzard and NetEase canceling the World of Warcraft mobile game. I was going to say, whoa, but then in one of the Discord servers I'm in, someone said that young people don't know what whoa is. So now I have to say World of Warcraft. Um, we're also going to be discussing... <laughs> I know, right? Uh, App 11 and Unity's merger proposal. Um, if we get some time, we'll then also talk about another Unity news, which is a Microsoft partnership, and we'll be diving into video game accessories. Sounds good. All right. Yeah. All right. Huzzah. Matt, World of Warcraft. All right. World of Warcraft. So, um, very recently, it was announced that a World of Warcraft mobile game was canceled. Um, we don't have a ton of information about what this game was, but it was in development for about three years, codenamed Neptune. It was being developed, <clears throat> excuse me, co-developed by Blizzard and NetEase. Um, now, you might know that NetEase also worked with Blizzard on Diablo Immortal, so they have sort of a pre-existing relationship. Uh, NetEase also publishes World of Warcraft in China, along with other Blizzard titles. Uh, there is a team of more than 100 developers that was, and I'm quoting here, tasked with creating content for the title. This team was disbanded. Um, supposedly, financial disputes were the source of the tension there. Activision has downplayed that. Um, but, um, you know, just in other sort of Warcraft news, there have been some other mobile games um, in the works. There's one called Arclight Rumble that is, uh, has been announced. That, uh, I'm not sure if they've announced a release date for that, but that is on the way. No NetEase involvement in that one. There was another one uh, that was called Project Orbis, which is like a Pokemon Go sort of AR game that was also canceled. Looks like more than four years of development on that one. Um, 
So I wanted to explore this from from two angles. One, obviously, World of Warcraft, massive name. I think people have been waiting for that to come to mobile for a long time. I think there's two mm-hmm. angles here. One is Blizzard um, and their sort of struggles to get titles over the finish line. Is this more of the same that we've seen with some of their other games or is this something new? And then the other angle, which personally I think is more interesting, is what's going on with NetEase um, and how might they change their strategy um, given this hiccup. So to dig into that just a little bit deeper, like NetEase also has a partnership with Microsoft, which as we know is sort of pending merger there. Um, they, uh, they publish Minecraft in China. Uh, we also know NetEase competes with Tencent. Uh, in a major way, and Tencent is already working with Activision on Call of Duty Mobile. Um, so, yeah, before I continue to ramble on further, I wanted to just kind of open it up to you all. Like, what is this? What do you What do you all take from this? Uh, are you more interested by the NetEase angle? Is it more of the same from Blizzard? What What do you all think? I, you know, what I got a question for you, Matt. Back at you, what proportion mm-hmm. of games get killed in your? career or in fact for all of you i mean um i'm trying i used to run this is before mobile so my time at ea mm-hmm. i think we sort of expected that to be about 50 percent of games that got started got killed and blizzard has quite a long track record i guess that's, that's one of your points is that things get killed along the way and i remember starcroft first person game that they took sort of to alpha beta that, that they yeah, killed yeah. quite a big one and i think it's it's maybe even part of their process. I suppose what's odd is that this is an externally developed game and NetEase have just proved that they've done a good job, uh, commercially at least, on on uh, Diablo. So it's curious to me what, uh, what happened there because they seem like a relatively safe pair of hands for mobile. Uh, I don't know. Others, what do you think? Uh, sorry, from the earnings uh, that Aaron was discussing last week, my understanding... Diablo Immortal performed well, but not well enough to solve all of their financial woes and reach their their targets. I wonder mm-hmm. if it comes from they're trying to put spread less through the eggs in their basket, have less bets. I don't know if the freeze of games being approved in China have affected the relationship with NetEase. Mm-hmm. Um, because even even now when China started approving more games, I believe no games from NetEase nor Tencent have yet to be approved. So perhaps that relationship that was strategic to access the market, it's not worth the investment that they had made into it and they're scaling back. Because I was thinking... And an MMORPG, like that's a big investment, right? A big yeah. ongoing investment. Well, yeah. but you don't know if it was a MMO or whether or not it was a World of Warcraft title that used that IP. Um, I thought it said in the article. Maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, you might be right. No, I'm not sure. I think maybe I just assumed it was an MMORPG, but it was definitely World of Warcraft right. that was the IP. Right. Yeah, if it was the one, that, if it was the one that was recently announced, it was um, not an MMORPG. It was like a battler game. But it was very high production, that game. There was a lot of conversations in the industry from people who develop mobile games discussing, mm-hmm. what, are you really going to do such a polished game before launch? Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Joe? Uh, it seems like a... Well, so Blizzard has a, a big problem in that they have this franchise of World of Warcraft. And the only way to continue to make money is to expand its audience in all directions. And then here suddenly is China. So while historically they've managed to work really well, right? uh, even Call of Duty Mobile is a big success for Activision then, but whatever, they're all the same team at some point. There is a um, you know distinct difference, I think, once they have uh, a polished title coming out to then say, okay, well, how do we monetize this and who gets how many of the marbles? Right? And I feel like it, in many ways you could, Rather than looking at the innards of the of the projects, like where does it sit in those large conglomerates, different relationships, and sort of the power dynamic between those different companies and countries, you know, is it a casualty of like some policy changes? Um, how much is the, you don't know how much the Chinese government is pushing the number two mm-hmm. Chinese game publisher, right? The biggest being Tencent, of course. So you have to kind of wonder, is like you know, 
game design is also uh, designing the business and the politics around it. It's probably just a bridge too far in some ways. I like, guess NetEase probably gets a lot of uh, trouble for working closely with uh, Western companies, you know, even though that's sort of uh, a policy in that country. At the same time, you know, for Blizzard to keep showing big numbers, they have to grow. And so they're both sort of duking this out on a revenue level. So my guess is somewhere along the line with the financials, they, uh, they couldn't really reconcile. And Nadi's probably had to say like, look, in order for us uh, to do this, we need to get a bigger piece of the pie. And Blizzard didn't relent. And so they just rather cancel it because both of their interests are at stake here, right? And Blizzard, of course, has the larger conversation of this acquisition looming and NetEase has its own stable and the Chinese government cracking down on all kinds of things. So I don't know if they're necessarily two companies that can't play nice together. I think it's like whoever they answer to ultimately are sort of these opposing forces. And so perhaps this is a bit of a crack in the larger rift that's emerging between Western and Eastern markets. I don't know, maybe that's a dramatization, but it feels that that would be a much more reasonable explanation than like, oh, this guy and that girl and the executive team couldn't agree over some percentage, right? I think that that's a little too uh, too small. Yeah. But I don't know, it's, a, it's speculative. Just to correct what I was talking about, so that mobile game uh, that was very polished, that's Warcraft Arclight Rumble, mm-hmm. so it's the one that has mm-hmm. not been cancelled. Mm-hmm. The one that has yeah. been cancelled. Oh, was an un was an unannounced MMO that they were developing for mobile. So it was an MMO. Okay, right. interesting. From yeah. from the brief, yeah, the the brief search I did. It's interesting, Joe. Your point mm-hmm. that I think we could probably agree that it's not because the game was bad. It's probably politics or mm-hmm. financial or something outside of the game production. I would think that caused it to be killed. Yeah, they could have with That's the with the acquisition. They could have reviewed and MMOs, they develop an MMOs. They know the costs that go behind it and the amount of time required. So if they're going to do something on mobile, mm-hmm. Arclight Rumble, so playing more into the, to the existing mobile uh, core mechanics and leaning into that and being mm-hmm. able to get out faster. And then also with the delays that they've been having with Overwatch, um, for example, yeah, they probably couldn't afford to wait another, I don't know, five, five years for this game to be ready. Mm. When they could be making a lot faster, leaner bets for mobile. What's your Matt? Mm-hmm. What's your point about uh, NetEase and their broader strategy? Yeah, so um, they have a tie-up with Microsoft as well, and so my thinking was maybe they're seeking to deepen this relationship, sort of seeing where the puck is going in terms of the acquisition that's pending at the moment, and hoping to have a larger, you know, overall partnership right. with Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard. Uh, all down the line. As I said, they they published Blizzard games in China already. They worked with Diablo Immortal. Um, <clears throat> for what it's worth, anecdotally, word on the street that I've heard is that it was a very difficult development relationship. Obviously, it's been mm. successful from a business perspective, mm. but I've heard this for from other game teams working with studios in China as well. There's cultural differences, time zone differences, working style differences. It's not always easy to co-develop a game, whether it's NetEase or Tencent or, or what have you. Um, but th- that's what I had heard about Diablo Immortal. Take that for what it's worth. Um, but th- that's what I was going for with the larger strategy. Maybe they want a bigger tie-up Interesting, Microsoft. In my experience, when there's a merger, then the existing relationships sort of outlast you don't immediately switch to the parent company. You know, the, the two, I mean, has, have yep. there, has it actually happened yet? I'm not, I don't, is the Microsoft Activision thing for me? I, I don't think no. it's been, no. I don't think it's been approved yet. Yeah, right. um, one thing I, uh, I also forgot to mention there uh, in somewhat related news is that NetEase had recently announced a studio just last month that they're opening up in Redmond, Washington. Uh, very close hmm. to Microsoft, um, and it's it's um, founded or led by a bunch of devs from Halo Infinite. So, you know, they haven't announced any titles yet. Maybe I'm just speculating here, but you know, smoke where there may be fire. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I did used to work with a product manager that used to do game dev uh, based in China. I won't go into details. He did say that it was extremely different, the ways of working there. And then he spent there about four years working. And then he came to the UK and he had to go through this full adaptation of ways of working, culture and processes. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I can imagine it's quite different. 
And maybe okay, there any... is maybe there is some shuffling around of uh, positions and relationships change a little bit. I think it might be a little early for them to switch from Activision to you know, or Blizzard to Microsoft, but I expect they're thinking about what happens after that event, right? Mm. All right. Should we talking about mergers? Should we go into the App Eleven Iron Source Unity? <laughs> love triangle. triangle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, love triangle. <laughs> it, as I was preparing Jeez. for this topic, it did feel a bit like a soap opera that I was reading through. I know. Okay. So I'll do a very brief recap on the Iron Source merger deal and then the Apple 11 merger deal. So with the Iron Source deal, um, Unity will own approximately 73% um, of the voting rights or the stocks, and Iron Source will own approximately 26%. And that value is uh, about, sorry, the value of the deal is about 4.4 billion. And then Applevin came around and they're like, no, don't choose Iron Source, choose us. <laughs> um, however, the tables were returned because what Applevin is proposing is that Applevin keeps 51% of the voting rights, whilst Unity will have 49%. And so part of the discussion that I want to have is about Unity's growth strategy and whether, you know, what's the better deal for them, Applevin, where they lose the majority of the voting or Iron Source um, that would have a, a relationship mm -hmm. that benefits Unity more in terms of having more autonomy and choosing what path they're going to to follow and right, Matt. I think I saw you leaning in. <laughs> oh no, I was <laughs> I was hoping someone else would lead on this one. I feel a little bit out of my depth on this topic. I, I'd start by saying it's. I'll, I'll go. You no go on. You, you go, just. So, so I think you put it on the board, anyways. But it's a, it's something that I've been watching and hearing about and talking about with a lot of people because it's you know first of all it has a billion in there right any billion dollar deal is like catches the attention and then secondly it's you know an additional move towards uh, consolidation which is a fantastic topic for people to either say this is great or it's timely or it's terrible and then there is um, the layer of advertising and in-game ads and sort of the wake of Apple changing its IDFA policies and how that impacts everything and and then there is, of course, you know, sort of the, the, the set pieces like a John Riccatello. It's like, okay, what's up with him? You know, what's this guy all about? And to your point, uh, you know, what does this mean for Unity's direction? Uh, they set up this whole set of activities. They made acquisitions and investments in like non-gaming uh, categories. Where does you, where do you go from here, right? And so, what's the driving force? And I think it all comes down to like, is the question whether or not advertising is a big enough piece of the business now that this all going to make sense, right? Yes, the privacy rules have changed, but it's also a more mainstream audience. Can you target those people? And then does that dilute because app loving really was a platform for advertisers and then acquired content and game studios and sort of they stickered on creative shops on top of this ad machine. Whereas, you know, in a, in a, in like a decade ago, like a, a machine zone was like, it was an analytics company that then started making games. And I was never a fan. I think we discussed this last time too, but it's, you know, sort of what's in the DNA of these firms that is ultimately going to be so great. And is this, and is that then also a proxy for a broader change in the industry? So there's a lot happening at the same time. But I would start with uh, the love triangle, right? I mean, it's three large billion dollar companies and, Iron Source is really the healthiest one by some measure. Yeah. Oh, sorry, David, you want to go? Yeah, I, I mean, no, first of all, like, it's an amazingly aggressive deal by app loving or proposal from app loving. It's not mm -hmm. really a deal. It's just a, putting something forward. But like, uh, I don't know, there's there's a certain politeness that goes on usually with these kind of deals, but a Unity announces it's going to acquire uh, Iron Source and everyone's sort of assuming that's the new world order. And then you're not used to other companies saying, hey, don't do that. <laughs> Shove that company out the way. Why don't we buy Unity? Mm -hmm. And it's a real like, what? <laughs> I saw a headline today where it says, uh, I think Reuters run with a, the headline that App Loving uh, offered to buy Unity. And I, it's, that's... I can barely fit that in my brain. I've just got used to them requiring iron source. To me, they are, um, 
there's some mm-hmm. odd things going on. Like I think that I, for me, Ironsaw sort of got to its IPO valuation because it said it was going to really develop these other verticals of automobile and architecture. I was never particularly bought into that. I mean, I understand why you might say it in order to justify is that IPO price. And subsequently it's gone down a lot. And I don't know how many of the acquisitions they've done subsequently to create those verticals. But really, I think most people see Unity as a games company. Uh, and certainly AppLove in, mm-hmm. I don't think AppLove ever talked about doing anything outside of games. And if anything, to your point, Jost, they are going further into games insofar as they're actually creating content they have um, or acquiring content. Last time I spoke to AppLove in, that was the main uh, thrust of what they were doing is moving from just being an ads company to mostly being a content company with ads. So that would really drag Unity mm-hmm. further into games and game production and away from this multiple vertical idea if they were to go for it. Yeah, Apple even recently separated the game development from the their ad mediation product, though. So they were That's going right. in a different direction. Now they've did, they've done a bit of a U-turn. So the way that I see this uh-huh. is that so Apple and I didn't say the 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 proposal that they're doing is to is twenty billion in value, so four point four billion against twenty billion. Even that is impressive in their non-binding proposal. So Apple Levin's, uh market strategy has been quite aggressive in the sense that they they're acquiring and then they're making a lot of payments to game developers to move to their product. So for example, they acquired Mopub. And then they made a lot of payments to get the developers to then use their Apple Oven product. And I see this as a, a, a way to continue dominating the market where they see Iron Source potentially going into this merger deal. And you know, we talked about in a previous episode of the data that Unity could have and the um, how it could support the ad mediation platform development. And so maybe AppLovin saw a threat that they could resolve with with money, and that's what this, that's what's leading them to do this. I'm going to make a bit of a bold prediction, mm-hmm. putting myself here on the line. Mm-hmm. I believe they will continue to go with Iron Source and not accept the AppLovin deal, exactly because Unity Unity's strategy is more than ad mediation. It's more than ad monetization, user growth. They're looking to expand into animation, film. We're going to talk about that partnership that they have with Microsoft. They want to bring um, mile events to the wider development um, industry so that be, you know developing metaverse worlds is more accessible, let's put it that way. And so I think binding themselves to AppLove and I believe through AppLovin's proposal where they have to break the merger deal um, with Iron Sources, either AppLovin or Iron Source, I think it makes AppLovin's motivations very clear. Mm-hmm. And so I think Unity will continue following their strategic path that they've started to I'll put in motion. Two other reasons why I think the other one is the the price that they so Unity's market cap today is about sixteen billion dollars and their AppLovin offering uh, $20 billion, which is, of course, is more, but it's a lot less than uh, Unity was worth, what, six months ago, or definitely an IPO. So, I mean, it doesn't feel like a great valuation for Unity. And the other reason is that culturally they seem really, really different. I mean, uh, Apple are in a scrappy, aggressive company that will bend the rules in order to get stuff done. And uh, and Unity, at least the way I see them and speak to them, is they seem very straight. Uh, trying to do things for the greater good of the community and building games and all that kind of stuff. And they just feel like different companies to me. Yeah, I agree with David. I think um, culturally they're very different organizations. And, you know, just the math of the deal doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It's So I did, I did my homework yesterday for this other thing, but it's um, app-loving is valued a little higher than Unity. But it has substantially more debt, mm-hmm. capital, right? uh, based on its capital basis. So, if you were to combine them, like the company would be the combined entity would have about thirty percent debt to capital ratio, which huh. is quite high. Um, you know, they do have revenue growth, but app loving quarter over quarter was only up four percent compared to Unity thirty six percent. And so, you know, now you have a billion dollars of income every quarter, which is fine, but it dilutes, of course, the growth overall. 
um, has a lot of that. So it's it's like a bigger fish, but I don't know if that's the more attractive partner. Like Iron Source, on the other hand, has barely any debt. Um, you know, makes about half of what Unity makes in a quarter, but it has sixty percent quarter over quarter growth and a lot more upside on the share price. Plus, Unity would be you know the big fish there. So I, th- I think to your point, David. I, uh, sorry, Maria. Like I think they're gonna. Say no, thank you, Eblomming. This is wonderful. Uh, you're coming on really strong, but you know I have this relationship <laughs> here that's much more enticing to me because it makes culturally more sense, because it makes financially more sense, and it gives John Riccatello also a lot more. You know, I don't want to overinflate the egos, but you have to imagine, like, if you know you join Unity to like take it public and then do all these things with it. You know, for them to take a seat and say like, "Well, we're going to give Eblomming 51% voting rights over 40 compared to 49 for Unity." You know, better to do it the other way around and keep Iron Source. And with Iron Source, uh, which so I go by um, enterprise value. App loving is about uh, 17, Unity is 15, and Iron Source is about four. Uh, combining Iron Source and Unity would be a bigger entity based on enterprise value than App loving. Mm-hmm. That's a much more interesting problem, right? If they can combine it and then take on App loving, you know, what's to say that they with a lot less debt on the books and more upside and more growth, you know, a year from now, we're talking about how Unity just bought out app loving instead, you know, it mm. could be a total reversal. So I think it's a bit of a rush deal because they see what's coming. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, like you had a, like Eric Seufert, he had, his metaphor was uh, it's musical chairs. Like you ought to get a seat or you don't and app loving is about to be left mm. standing. Yeah, I, going back to the love triangle, I almost see this as two people met each other, they fell in love and then someone's like, no, wait. I, I want to be in a relationship with you. Not because I'm in not because I'm interested in you, but just because I don't want this to happen. Yep. That's not how that's not how love works, right? <laughs> I think the operative word yeah. that you mentioned earlier, Maria, is aggressive. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Jeff Cohen and the DOF Slack. He pointed this out. They dropped this news the morning of Unity's earnings call. Uh, such that like they have to scramble to respond to it. Mm. Um, I don't know. It feels feels very yeah. aggressive. Yeah, I wonder whether. I, I mean, all of this sort of super aggressive maneuvering feels similar to me, like the 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 Elon Musk Twitter deal, non deal, whatever. Maybe we're yeah. into an age of yeah. people mm. just sort of posturing and saying, "Well, I'll buy your company for twenty billion dollars." No, I'll buy yours. Like uh, it doesn't historically, I, I've got no experience of that sort of thing happening. We now live in an age where people can tweet something and uh, shake things up without a, a, a ton of negotiation beforehand. It's, it's weird. Okay, well, I think we'll take a little break from Unity before diving into the partnership with Microsoft, and we'll we'll take a little bit for how do you call it? What, how do you call it when you want to get to a destination and then you take, you go to see some seaside some, some sites and then you go back. Yes. Diversion. Okay. Great. <laughs> this is when you realize that I'm, I'm Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. Um, what, what do you have to tell us about video game accessories? So accessories, I think is this under, under lit category because so much of it is, uh, very much rooted in the old business model of physical, bits and pieces it's products right you buy headphones and those weird looking esports chairs. do any of you have those esports chairs do you have one is that comfortable no. is it worth it no nobody has one i don't you know that no, was a I'm big sorry. thing so there was a there was this budding category for a while where it's like oh esports chairs are going to be big thing custom chairs and you look at it, it's like why would i do all this but my point of the uh, sort of bringing attention to the accessories category is twofold one of them is i think it's always interesting because no one ever talks about it it's about $5 billion globally of a market, which isn't super meaningful uh, overall, but at the same time, you know, they suffer from the same uh, supply chain issues as like consoles uh, and PC component parts. And then, of course, uh, the other part of it is like it's, it's usually like a proxy for like the hardcore scene, right? Like people that really want to commit that kind of money to it, it's like that's a different breed of customer. Uh, and often those are your evergreen customers or your Vanguard consumers, whatever. And so whatever's going on there is interesting. So the first takeaway is uh, that Corsair and um, uh, Turtle Beach report their earnings, and it wasn't great. And they all point towards the obvious stuff, right? It's the um, supply chain issues. It's the shortages. It's, uh, there's a lot of demand 
still, but everything is sort of stuck in transit. They can't get it there. Unlike consoles, Nintendo and Sony and Microsoft, they don't suffer from like chip shortages and all this kind of manufacturing drama. It's much more straightforward. Um, at the same time, um, because of all the hype, so the industry there, that, that category sort of doubled in size over the last two years because of the pandemic. Everybody's buying headphones. Everybody's buying mechanical keyboards, clicking away. Um, but so as a result, you now also see this change in ownership. So GN acquired SteelSeries. Uh, Razer went from public to private. Uh, you know, there's a lot of activity. And the suggestion is that um, not right now, um, but Turtle Beach has just given up its active search for an acquirer. Apparently, there was 100 companies that took a look at its financials and 100 companies walked away from doing a deal oh, with wow. them. So they gave up and they dis- disbanded their strategic team. But that's the, it opens the door in my mind for Corsair to buy them up in six to 12 months from now, which leaves basically all of the, or the, the lion's share of video game accessories uh, in the hands of one so, organization. And is that, is that exciting? Is that useful? Well, what's no, I don't included? Know. It, it, it seems like there, uh, what's there should be What's included in the video game accessories? Mice, mouse pads. Mice, mouse pads. And, and mechanical keyboards, right. uh, headphones, chairs, uh, the works. And, you know, it's the equivalent. So, so my mind to me, the, I mean, it's a good question. It's like, what's the equivalent in film or in music? Like what like do you okay, you can buy a five hundred dollar headphone, right? Is that a thing? Uh, you know, there isn't much like video games are so technologically uh, grounded, like you need so many bits and pieces and that you can customize and upgrade. But you can buy a bigger TV and you're really into film, or you can buy, you know, I met a a guy the other day, you know, this is a software developer and he was really into collecting vinyl and he didn't care about the music, he just wanted to have the old stuff. So collecting these old devices is something that really keeps the accessories in music alive, but like in video games, it's sort of a different direction. So what does that say about sort of the overall health of the industry? And what does that, you know, are we just sort of grow, outgrowing that st- that category? Do we no longer need that? Do people not want I, it? Like, so I'm always curious. Like, so, so in the background is this, and then, and then I'll let you respond. But the, the thing, so there's anthropologically always a setup, right? Like you can, uh, media research, what they'll do is they'll go to people's houses and say, show me where you watch TV. Show me where you do your work from home, office activities. And then they'll sort of take a snapshot and then, okay, who's in charge of the remote? Because that tells you about the pirate dynamic in the, in the household. And who sits where when you're on the phone? Does your wife get the windowed office and you're in the basement or is it the other way around? And so where people do what is sort of really indicative of social relationships so i find the same thing with gaming and you see people be identified through their purchases and their conspicuous consumption of like the the razor neon green stuff so i'm always curious like what people use to play right like, do you have that full library of the last 36 consoles ever produced or are you just sort of bumming around on a mac and a macbook or whatever trying trying your best like how you play and the circumstance under which is always interesting to me so i'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on that but it's changing. It's a changing. I think category. esports changed this market a lot because it went from I'm just going to buy these headphones mm-hmm. to casually listen to the music because I don't want to wake my parents up and still be able to play games. To you have mm-hmm. uh, influencers. You see what they're using. You have the keyboard, mm-hmm. the mouse, the the mouse mouse pad that are perfectly developed mm-hmm. for being able to maximize your performance in games. And I think is you just have clear brands that you go mm-hmm. to to buy those products. Um, and maybe these companies just haven't kept up with that professionalism that is now within the accessories. So anytime I buy anything, I just buy Razer mm-hmm. because I know that they're, they will have optimized towards the performance rather than, yeah, it looks, it looks good. If I'm buying an accessory, I don't. I, I don't want. I don't want good. <laughs> I want great. So you but so that means that you're not building your own. You're getting the. You're an end user, not a uh, power user. I was the. I was a power <laughs> user. Well, so I mean, so as opposed to like buying uh, the individual component parts to build your own PC. Right oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Right? Razor is very much like a package. Like, I, I'm not that professional. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not putting you in a spot. I'm just saying. No. I have a stealth book. Love it. You know, I think it's I'm, good. I'm not but, a power but user. It has, yes, like it, has, it, it emphasizes performance. What about you, Matt? I was going to say, you know, you were sort of making a distinction between um, like audiovisual equipment and music equipment uh, versus um, accessories. I think that there's a, there's a distinction, but I think they're sort of related. Um, uh, I recently was exposed to this because I've been thinking about getting a new keyboard and you can actually go quite deep on keyboards and like all these different switches and like, you know, you can go really deep in these like kind of hobbyist areas. I think probably the same thing exists, certainly in PC parts, probably in other areas like headphones, you can certainly go really deep in. I don't know about chairs. You've kind of exposed all of us as not having our esports <laughs> chairs and kind of being phonies on the call here. But um, I imagine there are chairs that are quite customizable for, uh, for gaming purposes. Um, uh-huh. So I think that, that that market exists. However, uh, is it very large? I don't know. I think you know, you raised the point about there being this sort of pandemic boom where everyone's buying headsets and, and things like that. I think there's some truth to that for sure. And that um, like how often do you realistically replace your your headset unless you're sort of, you know, you're playing Elden Ring and slamming it into the ground when you die every time. Like I don't replace my headset that often. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other um, maybe point or two is like um, some of it will be uh, held by um, people that uh, companies that don't operate exclusively in this space. So for example, Microsoft makes like a pro version of their Xbox controller. I imagine Sony does something similar. I think Nintendo does something similar for their Mm -hmm. switch controllers. Um, uh, so, so that's one thing. And the other thing is when we talk about PC, um, you know, gaming accessories, they can work for other use cases on your PC. So like you can have a gaming headset that you mm-hmm. use for your Zoom calls at work or same thing with keyboard, mouse, mouse pad, what have you. So um, there's a bit of crossover well, there. I believe Sony, I was just confirming this, uh, Sony in June uh, confirmed that they were announcing uh, mm-hmm. a gaming accessory brand for PC because they want to gain more brand awareness by being able to use their products there. I spent some of them. So a tough business. I spent some amount of time in the peripheral world in the, let me see, 2005 or something like that. I made a quiz game called Buzz, which came with plastic buzzers. Mm. And, um, uh, and you know, I mm. we built that with Sony. Sony handled the manufacturer of those. But I just, it's a completely different world. Here are some things that I found out. I remember thinking that the, the expense of making our game was really with us. And, the you know, the thrust of making this quiz game was with us until it was pointed out that the, I think there was a purchase order for uh, maybe 2 million sets of buzzers at a cost of goods of maybe $6 each. So by mm-hmm. far, the commitment from Sony was far, far bigger on the buzzers. Like if that game didn't work out, they were just burying these things in the in the desert. Massive commitment in inventory, mm-hmm. really tough. Then you've got to wait. Then we, I think we were a team of like 20 or 30, no, 20, I think, making that game. But there was a thousand people making those buzzers for us in China somewhere. And you realize we're just now the small part of the machine. And then it takes three months for those buzzers to make it to go from China to Holland, where they get blister packed up and then get mm-hmm. sent across Europe. And everything was so much more slow moving i guess it's physical things isn't it it's far more resource intensive far more uh you've got to commit far more cost in terms of uh, inventory and things just take that much longer and uh that was my glimpse into that world the sort of buzz buzzers and singstar microphone and eye toy cameras it was a glimpse that made me decide i'm never going to go mm-hmm. part near <laughs> that part of the industry again <laughs> yeah I, I, I learned that lesson when i worked in the industry of food product development stock management is not something we need to do now with digital uh products that that we develop i'm going to take a bit of another detour because i used to play buzz so much when i was younger that would be the birthday everyone's birthday party would always have buzz i was just curious how does it does it feel anything to know that so many people in the world had fun coming together and playing buzz. Like of I course. can't even wrap my head around working on a game of that kind of scale. Yeah, I think we we there's about twelve million copies of Buzz sold, and it was the sort of game that loads of people played. It had four controllers, and so I you know I'd run into a lot of people and say, 
And I, they, I said, I work in the games industry. And I, they said, well, what, what do you work on? I said, I probably wouldn't have heard of it. And they said, it's something called Buzz. Oh, yeah, we all know Buzz. And, you know, it's one of those games that made it past the games industry, which was nice. Same with SingStar, same with uh, Guitar Hero, those kind of things. It was, you know, they, what I would say about those peripherals is that they really were a big facilitator in reaching a wider market. So, um, Did you work yeah, on SingStar? Say again? Did you work on SingStar? I did some SingStar. Most of it happened in Sony London, but we did a couple right. of SKUs for them. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, because when I was a teenager, I did professional, well, competitive swimming. And so I'd spend a lot of weekends away from home, and we would always bring our SingStar microphones, PlayStation, and that's what we do on the weekends. We just do SingStar. Bring a PlayStation to Buzz Buzzers, uh, SingStar mics. You got a party right there. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Sorry. Should be a travel yeah. pack, you know, just all in yeah. one. Um, how is anything? Does anyone want to add something to the peripherals, the accessories? I think we took no. it on a diver diversion of a diversion, so. so maybe it's time to bring it back to uh, okay. YouTube. It was a nice vacation from the usual Unity yeah. talk. <laughs> we'll go back to it now. Yeah, I was wondering if Yos was going to say that he's a power user of accessories, building his his um, his. I'm not. I'm not. That's I, that's why I'm always trying to learn. Okay. <laughs> my my seeds. <laughs> so back to Unity. Here we are again. Microsoft and Unity partnership. We discussed some of the uh, intro into this, so I'll just quickly skip through. Um, and just mentioned things that are now unique to this new discussion. Okay, so early in the week, Microsoft and Unity, they announced a partnership, and I'm going to quote, they selected Azure as its cloud partner for building and operating real-time 3D experiences from the Unity engine. And when I read this, I realized I have no idea what real-time 3D experiences are. So I will break that down a little bit further. So real-time 3D assets mean that they're fully interactive and they're going to include 3D models like environments. It can be an entire virtual world that can be rendered uh, very fast, so just blink of the eye. And uh, when we say it's, it's real-time 3D assets, it's also engaging and immersive because you can interact with it. It's not like static content. And so if we look at Unity's strategy, I think part of this partnership is further leaning into um, their their goal to capture part of the film and animation market in terms of that, that development. We saw that they acquired SyncSketch, which is a workflow for visual effects and animation. I'm going to walk through in a little bit what the cloud um, allows for the development of these kind of assets. They're also looking to the end-to-end -end services for game developers. So we saw with Iron Source, so ad mediation, a user acquisition, um, app monetization. They're expanding into the new digital experiences, mm -hmm. mentioned earlier the miles, but also just general expansive virtual worlds that you could call a metaverse. I even found a tutorial online that was called how to develop a metaverse with Unity. So that's, <laughs> that's just becoming a thing now. Um, and in terms of what the partnership brings to Unity developers of having a cloud partner for these real-time 3D assets, it enables the creators to more easily reach the audience of Xbox and Windows PC, and it should accelerate onboarding their products onto, for example, the Xbox cloud. And it also has a, a bunch of DevOps tools that would just be better hosted on Azure or another cloud solution, like um, version control system, it allows, I think it has great integration with Parsec, which is a tool that allows uh, synchronous access to a computer. So especially for artists where you have very large files, it's not really feasible to transfer them between computers. Everyone can be working in the same place. And so I'm just quickly going through, I don't wanna repeat what we already discussed. And I think from Microsoft's perspective, they're keen to bring tools to creators beyond games to create non-gaming worlds. And I think this partnership is a great alignment between company strategies and enabling the accessibility through through Unity. So I, I think my first... Oh, sorry? No, go on. Go, go ahead with the question. I was just wondering, where are Apple and Amazon in this race? But feel free to comment another angle if you want to start from there. <laughs> I'm trying to work out. I find it hard to get excited about this story, and no offense given for you know selecting this, but you know what is 
you know, there's some sort of partnership that enables a slightly improved set of tools to help people outside games develop stuff. It, it, it just it doesn't seem to have a much meat to it. At least, you know, maybe it's in the way that it's been described, but it's not. I, I don't see how other people would suddenly say, "Oh, awesome! Now that Unity have done that deal with Microsoft, now I can do that thing that I could never do before." And you know, as a metaverse builder, great. I, off, off I go. It just doesn't, you know, maybe it results in something interesting, but in and of itself, I don't see what's exciting about that, why it's different from other type initiatives. My heart aches, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to mention, um, you know, one company we haven't discussed today, which I think is kind of the elephant in the room here is Epic Games. And uh, Unity is, you know, in, in a bit of an arms race to keep up with Unreal Engine and all the acquisitions that Epic has been making in that area, you know, Maria listed off some of the some of the acquisitions and, and tools that Unity has been working with, like they have Weta Labs and, and things like that. Epic Games has made a number of deals in that space as well, and so it's it, to me as an outsider it feels like a bit of a tech arms race who can have the most robust robust tool set for developers and create the most lifelike digital experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think maybe we don't feel excited because we're not tech artists. But I was speaking with someone who is into this, and they seemed very excited about the potentials, especially with the Parsec. Okay. Because it's very hard to collaborate with, with such files, and especially with the world becoming more and more realistic in terms of what we're developing uh, regarding art, the ability to g- create accessibility for developers to create these expansive, um, engaging, non-static virtual worlds, that that just feels like where we're going. And I think seeing the game engine companies leaning into giving more tools to developers reduces the barrier of entry to do a project like this. And I think ultimately that will be better for mm-hmm. the end the end user because the more people developing projects, the more competition there will be, and so the more investment in building great products. I mean, it's it's I, I like the term arms race. It's, I mean, it, I think it was you, Matt, who said it, but it's the um, you know, but it's a very friendly, amicable arms race. Yeah. That right, and, and <laughs> Unity seems to have finally now bedded Microsoft. But in 2019, it was Tencent. In 2018, it was Google. They've been working together with these massive platforms uh, and and announce partnerships around them. So it's, you know, it's in Unity's interest to be part of everybody's ecosystem um, and have some role in the development of games or other content. Um, you know, second piece is um, for me, and this is, so I, was, I was an advisor on the, uh, to Parsec during its acquisition and the lead up to it. And it's interesting to see how they sort of imagined how that would go. So the ability of a Parsec, for instance, to reduce latency to to a negligible amount, it seems you know, to an average user, and again, I'm not a power user, but if you are an artist and you need access to some ridiculous rig somewhere to make this amazing thing, to render the bejesus out of something, that becomes interesting and very meaningful. And so I don't, you know, I don't see why having more computational power accessible to people that are more demanding and creators that are more demanding that can only go the right way. And that's in Unity's interest. And of course, then you can see very quickly, clearly and easily the sort of cross-selling. It's like, okay, you know what? You buy a Unity license, you get some Azure bandwidth and some seats here. So they probably have some revenue back and forth that they share. Yeah. So that's all very exciting. It's sort of like, it's a bit of a brick in the road towards something much greater. But it makes a lot of sense. It's, I guess, maybe, and I don't want to derail too much, but so the app-loving thing that we discussed earlier. See, like they would have mm-hmm. to abandon a lot of this stuff because this is all non-gaming yeah. activity. This is all about architecture and design and you know whatever, things mm-hmm. far beyond gaming. And app-loving would totally push them in yeah. the other direction or pull them back into it, however you want to put it. So, so I don't know how that balances, but I, I do think it makes sense. It's a bit of a non-event, to be honest. Like they, they should be working with Microsoft, absolutely. So is that good? Well, that, you know. I- and I, and part of maybe why I'm not getting excited about this story is that if I interesting point, Matt, if you compare it with what Epic do. So when mm-hmm. Epic say here's UE5, 
And they did that uh, scene in the desert where they built these rocks yep. and canyons. Yep. You remember all that the triangles? Like we can all immediately remen- remember it. By way of contrast, here's a press release where, where I'm struggling <laughs> to understand what it does. So I think that they ju- ha- they have different ways of describing what they're doing mm-hmm. and why that's interesting. Um, the, the two, I mean, they're not completely similar, but they have some similarities. Yeah, yeah, yeah very different right. approaches, though, right? Like, I, I get the sense that that Unity kind of goes broad and then tries uh, to go deeper, whereas Epic Games and Unreal mm-hmm. they go very deep on games right, and they try to yeah, expand yeah, into yeah. other categories. Like, they've already gotten into film. Yeah, and it could come like from leadership style as well. That is such a good point. Like that comparison yeah, with sure. Unreal. Yeah, Unreal make this extravaganza. Just the what they call it. I don't know. I'm sorry with the expression. Is they call like tech tech porn or something whereas mm-hmm. you just make it look so alluring <laughs> it just makes you excited i'm just gonna go with like okay, i'm gonna go with hollywood like, it's a, the hollywood version of it and then and i guess well porn, there's a thing like food porn hollywood. i don't know if you know about it but anyway yeah, um yeah. Go, going back and then unity are more reserved yes. a lot more detailed in their descriptions whilst unreal is just let's just make this awesome video that will make people excited. So that's a really good point that they could have I, done more. There's another thing that Matt said along the way there, which is that, of course, Unity bought Weta. And now I'm trying to picture Weta and app loving. Mm-hmm. Weta being part of app loving? <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't feel right at all. <laughs> you know, that's really, I can't think of two, contrasting, <laughs> two more contrasting businesses than Weta and app loving. I uh, can't yeah. see those as bedfellows. And I see, yeah. I see Uni- both Unity and Unreal have a place in the market. I don't think we have a market for a single game engine. And mm-hmm. I think there are two, two existing advantages due to the history of, of those two game engines existing. Uh, Unity mm-hmm. has uh, the large percentage of the mobile market. I think it's 78%, something like that, of mobile game development. And you have a workforce as well of engineers globally that know how to work with unity and then you have uh, a group of engineers mm-hmm. in the world that know how to work with unreal and yes you can upscale and change into another game engine mm-hmm. but you're there ready to pick up the tool and so seeing a lot of crossover between the tools and the strategies of the two game engines i think it makes sense because i think they each have their own market to to protect and to lean into mm. interesting yeah. All right. We'll see. I don't. I don't, I don't know if it's like going to be the uh, the final say in that that competition. I think that they're, you know, they're like where's the number three in that market? Why aren't there more? Like I know that the, the major publishers they develop their own custom engines for certain components, like Frostbite, like EA does. Really. Um, and it, you know, I just always wonder why isn't there more? Like you, you have. So is this similar to like an operating system level conversation? Like you have Apple and Microsoft, but Linux, like nobody cares about Linux anymore. <laughs> that's which true. I know that that's that's not true, but <laughs> it's it, it's not it's not really you know it, it it was supposed to be the open source OS, and then probably it wasn't. So you know, is this the same thing? A game engine going? So those are the, the two major languages that we use well, to make these things. If, you, all if you're looking at the market, it's a busy market and a very expensive market to break into because you have you have Epic Games that has mm-hmm. Fortnite that creates the cash flow to make these investments and make Unreal the best game engine for high realism and these acquisitions of the tooling. And then you look at Unity that, you know, mm-hmm. they're struggling with profitability so you'd be entering already a market that is is difficult to become mm-hmm. profitable. And what what could you add? What would be your unique advantage, your competitor differential for people to stop using well-known tools, well-established in the market? They solve the problems what you have. Is there a problem that's unsolved by Unreal and by Unity? And, and you know, Unity doesn't make that much money from the engine side anyway. I forget what yeah. it is, like maybe a quarter or a third. Most of it comes from the ads. I just don't think engine, yeah. there's just a limited amount of people that want to license uh, a game engine. I used to look at a lot of, go and visit a lot of game developers, like in the mid-90s, where if they had their own proprietary engine, it looked great. 
then that would be a big tick in the box. But by the end, you know, I did that for about five years. And toward the end, if they were still running on the proprietary engine, that would be a cross in the box. I mean, it really, in that period of time, the advantages of using your proprietary engine was just fading away. And it'd be more of a burden to try and maintain something yeah. uh, that competes with something that has an army of developers keeping it uh, up-to-date and bug-free and suitable for purposes. So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to me... I think maybe an engine is a springboard into a, another business, which is maybe what Unity have done and maybe uh, Epic have done as well. But uh, maybe it's not that attractive a business in and of mm-hmm. itself. To me, um, the one one place I could see maybe there being an opening in the engine market is like low code yeah. or no code solutions. And that's where we have things like Roblox start to come into play or like there's a company called uh, what is it core or Metacore? I forget exactly what they're called that Epic has, Epic has invested in, but they're also meant to be like a really casual uh, game development tool engine, whatever you want to call it. Um, but you're sort of at that point, it's kind of borderline UGC engine um, with the emphasis on usability and not necessarily like a, professional or prosumer level. And Roblox spent a bunch of, lots of money developing their own engine, which is rather struggling with profitability, but it's exactly right. right? It's uh, the no code, I think is a big, a big thing. Yeah. And you see a lot of big game companies now also deciding to move away from it using their proprietary engines and just use a solution like, like Unreal. I think the value proposition of, do you need a team of 100 people or more developing a proprietary game engine that anytime you want to add a new feature, well, that's another feature that they need to put into their backlog and you gain these dependencies instead of using a third party solution that solves the grand majority of, of problems. Mm. Can I, can and I... even more nowadays where, right, where games are becoming a lot more expensive to produce right. any costs that you can cut to focus on what can I do that delivers unique value to the product that I'm delivering? And that will be mm-hmm. like the game design, the essence of the game and not particularly the game engine. Right. Can, can I add Niantic to this? Like, you know, they gave their, they're opening up their platform, right? It's like, so is that the AR mm-hmm. engine? De facto, the AR engine? Like, how does, is that a, is that something that's going to be its own Unity slash Epic Games? organization because of that but you know so is so only when technology sort of jumps uh, do we get the opportunity to build new engines like how does that fit i might be wrong here but i don't think it's a full-on game engine i think they're making public the usage of the ar tech where mm-hmm. it knows where you are and how to overlap things again i might be completely wrong i haven't yeah exactly it's like an sdk yeah. right Right. So it Light solves that SDK, problem, but it's not a game engine in itself. But so does that have the the seed of an engine or is that or is that all that's left sort of SDK? So it's just going to be Unity, Epic and a bunch of SDKs around them. I'm curious, like, I just wonder, because so much happens. These are the brushes and the lumber Don't that know. people use to yeah. paint and you know, hammer things. I mean, it would be, I guess one uh, thing to consider is for a long time, we just had Max and Maya as 3D art tools, or at least those are predominant ones. And then Blender, you can see, is the free version that's crept up from behind and got a lot of people using it because it's free. And uh, now it feels like, I'm not an expert on this, but it feels like that's certainly got a place in the games industry. So mm-hmm. it's conceivable that you can have a low-cost or free game engine that has enough functionality. Certainly, one another thing that's changed at least in a lot of the gaming market, is that consumers don't need to see that extra one percent that an engine will, uh, the best possible engine will get you. Right? You know, if, if you're building Candy Crush, you probably don't need the best possible engine to make that. I mean, it still has to be high quality, but maybe the need to get the very last one percent out of the silicon is isn't as important in, as it used to be. Yeah, and in terms of Niantic going and expanding into the game engine, like putting my product manager hat on, it's why? What value will it bring you doing that extra investment? If you focus on a unserved market, which is the AR SDK, mm-hmm. then focus and become really good at that and create this unique position of yourself in the market rather than just trying to straddle too many verticals. 
and then they're yeah. competing with yeah. Apple probably. They are. I, I felt a bit Niantic. My final thought on this is that they uh, they had the big success and they haven't been able to replicate it. So it's like, well, why don't we just like lease out our tools rather than break a bunch of money on like trying to come up with a Harry Potter AR game that nobody wants. Whatever. So so it seems like a, the creative part is the harder part. Like it's much easier to like, you know, lease out your tools. So anyways, but so it's a it's it's very interesting. I appreciate well, your, your your thoughts. It's hard to develop a really good platform that solves mm -hmm. uh, developer needs and is flexible enough to accommodate different kinds of game genres. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot to dig into, into making a very good game developer experience with with your product. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, we saw that's what that's what Epic Games did with their, for example, their Epic Online Services. They mm -hmm. used what they developed for Fortnite and kept building it into a product and added more value to the existing users of uh, Unreal. Okay, we'll have to wrap up the episode now. Although I feel we could keep talking about this for quite a well, long time. It, that, that ended up being quite a meandering conversation. I was trying to remember where we started. It was Unity partnering with Microsoft and we're talking yes. about engines. and you know. <laughs> which, okay. which you broke my heart about. I'm sorry. sorry. I'm so sorry, that. David. <laughs> the crush of disappointing David is too hard for me to handle. If you want to give me further disappointment, you join us on Discord on Navic. Um, it would be lovely to hear your thoughts about these these discussions. And thank you for listening in. Thank you for joining. And we'll see you again next week. Bye, everyone.